The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. The Bible says in Nehemiah chapter number one, we'll read the first three verses. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month of Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. This morning, Pastor is going to come, and he's going to give us an introductory message as we begin our message series through the book of Nehemiah. Well, I'm so glad that each and every one of you could be here with us today as we embark on a brand new message series, The God Who Builds, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Nehemiah. And on a regular basis here at Ambassador, we like to take the opportunity of just going verse-by-verse through particular books. And over the years, we've hit several different books of the Bible, and uh, we really believe it's something that is an encouragement and a help uh, to our faith. Now, if you were here several weeks ago for our Vision Sunday, uh, we unveiled really a desire to continue to move forward as a church family in the mission that God has called us to in this place. About four years ago, we stepped out by faith and, and God allowed us to begin to prepare to move into this particular property. And uh, this year, we're uh, jumping out, we're stepping out by faith in one of the most important ways, probably in the most uh, faith-filled ways we have since that time. And uh, we're excited about some of the opportunities that God has placed before us. Uh, We really do believe that over the next few months, uh, God's uh, opening up some opportunities for us to expand even the facilities here. And we're looking forward to adding a youth center as well as additional children's space. Uh, We're going to be also in uh, expanding our worship service times. And so there's a lot of expansion, a lot of building that God, I believe, is going to do in the year 2017 right here through us. But in, 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 in a deeper way, all of that physical building that'll take place and some of the physical expansion that I believe God will allow us to do, I really believe that it's metaphorical uh, for the spiritual expansion, for the spiritual development, for the spiritual building that God wants to do in every single one of our lives. And, and whether that's in our marriages, or whether that's in our families, Uh, Whether that's in our church congregation at large, I firmly believe that God wants to do a work. And and so we've entitled this particular series, The God Who Builds. Now, the interesting thing about this particular passage of the Bible is we're going to see that God uses Nehemiah to build something up that was previously broken down. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you're in a situation where you feel like in a lot of ways, maybe in your relationships, they're broken down. And, and, and maybe your marriage, it feels like, man, it's not what it once was. It's, it's been torn apart. And maybe for others of you, it's in relationships with your children or with loved ones. And you felt like there was a season in your life where those relationships were stronger, when those relationships maybe were built up in a way that they aren't currently today. And I want to say to you that the theme of this particular book is the fact that we serve a God who builds in the midst of brokenness. And and sometimes we get this idea, yeah, maybe if God had a fresh start and maybe if everything were perfect and maybe if I could turn back the clock 20 years, maybe then God could do something miraculous and maybe then God could do something big. But the hope and the promise of this particular book is that God does some of his greatest building at the very point of our most agonizing brokenness. And whether that's brokenness in your health or in your marriage or maybe it's in your career, I, I hope that this particular series will just encourage your heart. I-, I pray that it'll stir up your faith to believe that we serve a God that can build, that can expand, that can develop things even in the midst of some horrible and difficult brokenness. And and that's what we're going to see over the next several months as we just go verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. And that's the hope. That is the promise of these particular passages. Now, I do want to say as we get going here today, 
our introductory sermons are going to be somewhat academic in nature, and I hope that's okay with you. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if we are truly going to understand what's happening, then we need some good context, all right? Uh, it's, it's possible to dive into the Word of God, and if we don't understand some of the historical context, some of the political context of the day and age, even just some of the context of the culture that we find from these passages, it's, it's very easy to misinterpret what it is that's being said. And so what I'd like to do today is I'd like to lay some strong context, both politically, uh, culturally, historic, we'll even get into a little bit of archaeology, uh, just in regards to helping us understand what's taking place when these words were being written, all right? As I said a moment ago, our theme for this entire series is simply this. God often does his greatest building at the very place of our most agonizing brokenness. If you want to jot that down in your service program, because we're going to come back to that theme a lot throughout this series. All right, and we've already talked about it a little. We'll unpack that more in the weeks to come. So during our introduction of the book of Nehemiah, we're going to look at two aspects. We are going to look at the history of Nehemiah's story, and then we are going to look at the hope of Nehemiah's story, all right? So if you'll bear with me, let's start out by looking at the history of Nehemiah's story. Over the next few moments, we're going to unpack several aspects of Nehemiah's history. So let's begin by looking at a synopsis of the story. Pastor Nick read it just a moment ago. The Bible says here in verse number one, and it came to pass, all right? Kind of sounds like the beginning of a story, doesn't it? And it came to pass. Well, what exactly came to pass here? Well, as we're going to see in this particular story, that hundreds years before, uh, Basically, the children of Israel had been defeated. There was the fall of Jerusalem. The temple and the walls had been destroyed. Uh, This took place at about 586 B.C. So a little less than 600 years before the time of Christ. Literally, Jerusalem, the temple, the walls were destroyed. They were taken into Babylonian captivity. Uh, About uh, 50 years later, in 538 B.C., the first group of Israelites begin to make their way back to Jerusalem, all right? And so they, went, they were allowed to go back, and, and under certain political constraints, they were able to rebuild a little bit their homes. Uh, to some degree, you're going to see in a few years later, they were able to rebuild the temple. Uh, but for different reasons, they had not yet built the walls around their particular city. Uh, It was about 445 B.C. where this book takes place, all right? So in this particular story that we read in verse number 1, verses number 2, and verses number 3, a gathering from Israel had come here to Shushan. And what we're going to find is there was a, a man there by the name of Nehemiah. He served the king there in Shushan. We'll unpack this a little further in a few moments. But as they were talking, Nehemiah asks his brother and those that came with his brother from Israel, he said, how are things going in Israel? He, he asked the question, all right? And basically, his brother responded to him, it's not good. He says, the people aren't doing well. He says the walls have still not been built back up, and this just breaks Nehemiah's heart. Uh, This is where his lineage is from, his heritage is from, and it tears him apart. And it literally is the first domino that sets in motion this entire book of Nehemiah, all right? And so what happens, this historical book in the Old Testament, all right, or what we would call the historical books in the Old Testament, uh, is starts with what we would call maybe Joshua. Now, for those of you who are familiar, the first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the Pentateuch. The corresponding books of the Bible after that, all the way to the book of Esther, is often referred to as the historical canon of the Old Testament scripture. Uh, the books between 
Joshua and Esther represent about 1,000 years in the life of the children of Israel. And so uh, scholars or theologians will often refer to these books as the historical canon or the historical books of the Old Testament. It's during this 1,000 years that the prophets spoke, the psalmists would sing, and the sages raised their voice, all right? And for this 1,000 years here, the children of Israel went through good times and bad times. There were seasons where they were honoring the Lord. There were seasons when they had turned their back on God. And again and again and again, God, trying to get the attention of the children of Israel, would allow seasons where they would be put into exile, seasons where they would come under siege, seasons where they would come under bondage because they would forsake their God. And here we find them coming out of one of those seasons here in Nehemiah. And so the Bible says here in verse number one, it came to pass. Ecclesiastes chapter number three and verse number one says it this way, there is a time for everything and a season for every purpose under the heaven. Can I remind you of this? In the seasons of life, there are good times and there are bad times. And I want to remind you that God uses all seasons for your ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. There is a reason, this passage says. There is a purpose. And as we look at the beginning of Nehemiah, we can scratch our heads and say, what's the purpose of allowing the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, to go into exile, to come under bondage of of the Babylonians? What's the purpose for that? What's the reason behind it? Why would God allow bad things to happen to seemingly good people? And as, we're, as we see in the scriptures, God has a reason. He has a purpose. And I want to remind you here today, though we don't always know why God allows certain seasons into our lives, and though we don't always fully, uh, aren't able to fully grasp why he allows certain health situations to come to pass, and he allows seasons of brokenness into our lives, I want to remind you that our God is sovereign. Our God is a God who is provident, He is in control, and He works all things together for good to them that love Him. There is a reason, there is a purpose, and even when we don't know that reason, and even when we don't understand that purpose, our God is a God who has reasons and He has purpose. And so we see first a synopsis of this story. Uh, Which leads us here, I want you to see really quickly, not only do we see a synopsis of this story, but I want you to see the subject of this story, all right? Um, Just kind of as a little fact, as we unpack who Nehemiah is, the Bible says here the, the words of Nehemiah. Now this is interesting, uh, but it was probably about uh, the oldest Septuagint manuscript. So the Septuagint was the Old Testament translation um, into Greek, all right? So obviously the Old Testament was originally written in, does anybody know what was the Old Testament originally? Most, most of the Old Testament was originally written in what, what language? Hebrew, okay. So when they took the uh, Old Testament from Hebrew and they translated into Greek, which was the common language at the time uh, of Jesus here, they used something called the Septuagint. So the Old Testament Bible in the Greek was called the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, when you went to the book of Nehemiah in the Septuagint, actually, Ezra and Nehemiah were combined, all right? And this is kind of an interesting historical fact. In fact, uh, both Ezra and Nehemiah were basically considered one book until a man by the name of Origen came along in about 200 AD, and he separated the two books, all right? And know what he called it? Ezra 1 and Ezra 2, all right? Around 1500, they started referring to it as uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so there's kind of a, an interesting backstory to how uh, some of these uh, came, came to pass. And so we see Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, most scholars believe that the author of Nehemiah was, in fact, 
Ezra. So Ezra was a prophet, to give you a little background. He came before Nehemiah. He made his way into Israel, and God really used him as a prophet to really stir up the spiritual, moral temperature of the city of Jerusalem at that time. And Nehemiah would come back. uh, He would come to Israel many years later. But when Nehemiah came, he didn't come primarily as a religious leader. He came primarily as a political leader. Under the sanction there of Babylon, he would come as the ruler. He was given authority to be able to build, to be a a civic leader of sorts. And so Ezra and Nehemiah have a lot of parallels. And so Ezra is commonly referred to as being the human author of the book of Nehemiah. And that's why in the earliest manuscripts... Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book. It wasn't until much later that they were then separated, and then after many years, even the names got changed from one Ezra to Ezra to Ezra and Nehemiah, since the theme of the latter part of Ezra was, in fact, Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is the subject of this particular story. Now, what's interesting about Nehemiah is he's neither a priest nor is he a prophet. Ezra was a a prophet, all right? But Nehemiah was neither. He's just a layman, okay? We, we might say just a blue-collar worker that surrendered to allow God to use his life however the Lord may have desired. Now, if you study the name Nehemiah, it simply this me, means this, Yahweh comforts. Yahweh was an Old Testament name of God, all right? And so in the Hebrew language, the uh, nation of Israel would often refer to God as Yahweh, It was a name for God. The name Nehemiah literally means Yahweh comforts. That's what Nehemiah means. And and isn't that so fitting? That God was going to use a man by the name of Nehemiah to really build back the nation of Israel to bring some political and civic order to a place. And in doing so, a comforter. And I want to remind you of this. In the day and age in which we live, God has also sent a comforter to you. We refer to him today as the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Jesus said, when I ascend into the heavens, I'm going to give you the comforter. Capital T-H-E-E, the comforter. And his name is the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. You see, just as God in his sovereign providence would give the nation of Israel a comforter who would build, so God has given every person here a comforter. And through the power and through the grace and through the strength of the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit desires to build some things up into your life. We could say it this way, the Holy Spirit, this comforter is going to develop some things, cultivate some things that were once broken. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, my marriage is at a place, I don't see any way in which this thing is going to come together. I want to say that God has sent you a comforter. And that comforter has the strength and the power and the ability to rebuild and to renew that which has been broken in your marriage. And in your health, even in your finances, when you're at work, you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you as a believer who's there to comfort and to build that which has once been broken. That's what the Holy Spirit can give to you. That's what the Holy Spirit makes possible to you. And so the name Nehemiah literally means Yahweh comforts. Now, as we're going to see in these verses here, Nehemiah, we'll actually see this in the, in, in the upcoming verses, but we're going to find out in a minute that uh, Nehemiah was a cup bearer, all right? A cup bearer. You say, what is a cup bearer? Well, in ancient political times, the monarchs or the kings would have one who would eat the food, and they would drink of the drinks before it was given to the king or the monarch. Because in ancient biblical times, if you didn't like a king, uh, you would go and try to assassinate them. And one of the common ways in which people would try to assassinate kings and monarchs in ancient times is they would attempt to poison them. So after a few of these kings had keeled over from being poisoned to death, uh, what they decided to do is they said, you know what, rather than us important kings dying, uh, let's hire a servant, make them eat the poisonous food first, we'll let them die. How 
nice of them, right? You know, what, what a wonderful thing to do. And so the king, uh, king uh, we see here, he kind of got and he said, you know what, Nehemiah, he was a trusted man. And so they chose Nehemiah. And so that was Nehemiah's job. He would literally be a cupbearer. Now, uh, the ancient Hebrew word for cupbearer is actually translated twice in the Old Testament as butler in the book of Genesis. And so it, when you think about a cupbearer, really, or you think about a butler, uh, in the Old Testament context, they're, they're two of the same, all right? And so in Genesis, where Joseph meets the butler, he's also talking there to a cupbearer, someone who had the exact same role as Nehemiah would have here in this particular uh, passage. Now, some of you may or may not realize this, but to this day the secret service still uses taste testers uh to eat the president's food how many of you knew this one in fact uh in uh, 2013 it was uh, claimed that uh president obama at the time refused to partake in a meal uh since his taste tester was not present and so even to this day this is a role though not talked about as much still exists uh among you know presidents and uh, heads of state so the scriptures call him here in this passage Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, here's, here's what's interesting about this. Here in verse number one, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, you say, now what does that reveal about Nehemiah? Honestly, it doesn't reveal anything about him. In, in fact, if anything, we kind of start looking into the life of Nehemiah and we start to realize Nehemiah was nobody incredibly important. I mean, at the end of the day, he was a butler. He was just a servant. I mean, in, in our day and age, maybe, maybe some of you at some point in your life, you went to a really uh, nice hotel or something like that, and you had somebody help you with your bags, you know, to your room or something. Uh, that would have been the social status of Nehemiah. He, he really wasn't that important. He really wasn't that spectacular. But he was just a man who loved God. He was a man who had a burden for the, for the things of God. He, he was just a normal, everyday, average person. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, man, I, I know God desires to build something in my, in my life or through my life, but I just, I don't feel like I'm anything spectacular. I don't feel like I'm anything special. And I'm here to say, it's not, the, the whole point of this story is, that this, the title is not the Nehemiah who builds. The sermon series is called The God Who Builds for a very specific purpose. Because while God in his providence and his sovereignty will often use people to accomplish his, wor- his will, he will pour out grace through individuals. At the end of the day, it's not about the human subject as much as it's about a divine God. This story, more than it po- points to an awesome Nehemiah, really does point to an awesome God. And as we flip through the pages and we go verse by verse through this study, what we're going to discover and what we're going to find is, man, Nehemiah is not that awesome. Nehemiah is a pretty average Joe. But what we're going to see in this passage is God can do some really big and awesome and exciting things through average Joes who just say, I'm surrendered who will humbly say, God, I can't, but you can. And so, God, I humble myself and I believe with a heart filled with faith that you can do something bigger and greater and grander than anything I could ever do on my own. And that's what makes this story so epic. That's what makes this story so exciting because because Nehemiah, man, he's he's a servant. He's kind of a nobody. But what this story points out is the awesome things, the exciting things that God can do with a nobody who's fully, fully and completely surrendered to him. So if you're sitting here today and you're, I'm no preacher, I'm no famous politician or celebrity, I'm just an average Joe, I want to remind you, you're just the type of person that God uses to build. You're the type of person that God can use to, to restore things, to build things up doesn't matter your background doesn't matter your pedigree doesn't matter where you came from it's not about you it's about your god and if i hope to point out anything in this particular series it's that nehemiah's god was big nehemiah's god was awesome and nehemiah's god could do things exceeding abundantly above anything even nehemiah could ask or think but god's the the god of nehemiah 
is also your God. And the same way that God used Nehemiah to do great things, God can use you to do great things as well, to restore that which was broken. I I will say this about Nehemiah. I I think if his role as a butler reveals anything, as a a cupbearer, as a taste tester, if it reveals anything, probably the one character attribute that it reveals is that Nehemiah was trustworthy, all right? I mean, how many of you realize if the king was going to put his life in your hands, you'd have to be pretty trustworthy? And I would say, if anything, about Nehemiah's career or his job reveals anything, it really reveals something about Nehemiah's character. It reveals something about his trustworthiness. And I believe there's something about that that maybe created an environment that, that God could use in kind of a unique way at this season in history. It's 2 Chronicles chapter number 16 and verse 9 where the Bible declares that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Here and thou hast done foolishly. And so the Bible's saying here, hey, God's, God's looking for those with a, with, a, with a heart of humility and with a heart of faith who he can use to build over that which has been broken down. And I would pray that God would develop here at Ambassador people whose hearts are humble toward Him. Those whose hearts really are in a position where, where, where they do believe that God can do what He says He can do. Whose heart is perfect toward Him. And aren't you glad, based on the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're in perfect position to stand in perfection before God? This is a wonderful thing. Nehemiah didn't get to experience that in the old dispensation. But those of us who are in Christ, we can step in humbly to the throne of grace, knowing that because of Jesus, our heart is in perfect standing before God and in a spirit of faith by simply believing that what Jesus Christ did is true we can experience this using of God in our lives I will say this you know as we move through it life often gives opportunities just in wisdom and the sowing reaping and principles of life God often gives good opportunities to those who who yield to God's grace in their lives much like Nehemiah did being a, a trustworthy man of integrity God allowed him to be elevated there in the king's palace. I find that in just a basic way, those who at their workplaces are just trustworthy. Those who allow God's grace into their lives, who yield to God's grace. You see, God's spirit wants to do these things through you. He wants to demonstrate Christ's life through your life. But we've got to be willing to surrender to that, to be humble enough to say, God, I I desire that your life would be lived out through me. And I find that people who come with a posture of the heart that is humble, full of faith, believing that God can live his life through us, if we'll simply yield to him in a humble posture of faith, that God will live his life that Christ's spirit will live his life through us it's amazing for people who will simply yield and humble to that how God begins to give unique opportunities in the world in which we live much like he did for the person of Nehemiah and so here in this passage we've seen a synopsis of this story we've seen the subject of the story his name is Nehemiah here but I want you to see second thirdly here the season of the story all right When did this take place? When did this happen? Uh, Notice what the Bible says in verse number one. And it came to pass in the month of Chisalu in the 20th year. Now, when we read the word Chisalu, we're like, okay, what does that mean? I know a lot of this is using some ancient archaic language. Uh, The month of Chisalu would uh, relatively correspond to our December, all right? To to the best we can tell from calendars. And so uh, the season in which all of this take place would have been the winter season. So these would have been traveling during colder times. And and, uh, this would have been a season kind of during the winter when this takes place. The scripture tells us that it is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes I, king of Persia. Of course, uh, as the Persians came and overtook uh, Babylon there was their headquarters. Artaxerxes I reigned 40 years. His reign began in 465 BC, uh, beginning at 465 and then for 40 years, all right, until 425 BC, Artaxerxes I, he reigned. And so this is the season in which we find ourselves. And this would date the beginning of the book of Nehemiah at approximately 4 
445 BC. So, you know, everything, you know, kind of all put together. This is this this story, all right? This narrative took place about 2,500 years ago to kind of put some of this in perspective. Now, by this time, the prophet Ezra had already been in Jerusalem now for 14 years. Now, remember, Ezra's job in Israel was much different than Nehemiah's job was going to be. Ezra's job was going to be more that of religious reform. He was going to focus more on the heart. He was going to focus more on the spiritual temperature of Israel. Uh, He was going to be used in regards to cultivating the temple. Uh, Nehemiah's role is going to be different, all right? Nehemiah is going to take the role of a governor. He's going to take a more of a political role in some building some things up and so that's what we see here in this particular passage nehemiah is coming as a civil governor with the authority from the king of persia remember israel is still under their authority it's not like israel can just say we're going to do this and we're going to do that they are still under the rule of persia but nehemiah had so gained the heart of artaxerxes He was so trustworthy as he served as his butler, as he served as his taste tester, that he had gotten the king's heart. He literally built up trust with the rulers as he allowed God's grace to work through him to the point that literally Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, and we're going to see this later, so I don't want to ruin the story, but he's going to give Nehemiah the authority to go, to leave there the palace, and to go and serve his people there in Jerusalem. And so we see here the timing. Now, we're going to see in a moment that the book of Nehemiah spans relatively 12 years. And so I I will say this, all right? I'm going to do my very best to not take 12 years uh, to, to preach these narratives, all right, all right? So I'm gonna, we're going to condense a lot of this and uh, do the best we can in those regards. But this book, uh, in chronological time, is going to take somewhere in the time of 12 years. Now, by this time, the first group of Jews had already been back for 75 years. So uh, you got to kind of get the context here. When Nehemiah makes his way from Shushan, where Artaxerxes would reign from there as a king of Persia, and he makes his way over to uh, the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. When he gets there, remember, uh, even though the Israelites had been in exile, they were forced to leave Israel. Uh, Some of them had already come back. And now for 75 years, there have now been Israelites living here in Jerusalem, but they're living there under very poor conditions. They're they're not thriving. They're not being super successful. Uh, A few years earlier, they had managed to build a a temple to to God, and and they had gotten that done, but the people were just in, in a rough situation while they were there, all right? And so, but not much, not much beyond just the temple had been built. Whenever they would start to work on the walls, which is something that they would want to do, they had a desire to, to build some walls that would protect their city, uh, either their enemies would start to intimidate them, would come against them, they didn't want these, ball, uh, these walls built up, and so they would, have, they would be forced to do that. And then at other seasons that, man, when they couldn't do that, then what would happen is there would be uh, maybe political maneuvering that would happen and so some of their enemies would actually go back to Persia go back to Sushan and say hey you know what I saw that they're building these walls and they would literally put political pressure on to keep uh, this wall around their city from being built and in ancient biblical times a a wall around a city it's what designated there to some regards some sense of community um, it was the thing that would provide uh, some sense of safety, not just from, you know, foreign enemies, but literally just from wild animals, from a whole assortment of different things, a lot of the desert winds that would come through. So these walls served a very practical purpose uh, in the day and age in which they lived. In, in fact, in ancient biblical times, if there were a temple then the pagan people would look at the walls around that temple and it would, to them, it would signify how big and strong and great the God of that temple was. So in a very real way, the fact that God Jehovah, his temple there in Jerusalem, had no walls around it, it was kind of a poor testimony to the pagans in the area at that time because those uh, that did not believe in God, they would look at this temple from the God Jehovah, they would look around and there were no walls. And so that, would, that wouldn't be a strong representation because in that current culture, the way a pagan would look at a God and, and foresee how strong that God was and how great that God was, 
was had to do with the walls that surrounded its temple. And so when Nehemiah hears about the fact that there are no walls around the temple of the Lord Jehovah, it wasn't just this thing that, well, they needed some protection from the wind and the elements and the animals and the enemies around them. It was more than that. It was the fact that Nehemiah knew that there were people all around Jerusalem, and when they saw the temple of the Lord Jehovah, it kind of made them laugh a little bit. Like, hey, their God must not be that awesome. Their God must be, not be that great. Their God must be, not be that powerful. He can't even build a little wall around his temple. And so they would mock God Jehovah. They would make fun of God Jehovah because those walls were symbolic in the minds of the pagans about how big and great their God was. And so when Nehemiah desires to build a wall, it's not just for the people of Israel. It's for a greater purpose. It's for the glory of Jehovah. It's for the glory of God. And so that's his heartbeat behind this as, as we look to this particular story. Now, as we look at the season or the timing, Ecclesiastes chapter number 3 verse 11 says this, that God hath made everything beautiful in his time. Yes, there was a season when God in his sovereignty and providence allowed these walls to be broken down. But I want to say to you, just because the walls around the temple were broken down, that didn't mean that God wasn't in control. It didn't mean that God was in heaven thinking, man, I hope somebody comes along who will build up these walls. My name's at stake. My glory's at stake. Like, what are we going to do here? That's not the spirit. That's not the heart. You see, our God is a God who's big. He is in charge. And the fact that he allowed a season to go by where there was no wall, where there was no temple, where the city was broken down. Can I say this? That was a part of God's sovereign will. But I want to say also this, that he also understood that that brokenness was for a season. And there would be a moment where he would take that brokenness and he would make that brokenness beautiful, but he would do it in his time. And I want to say to you today, I realize that as some of you look at your life, there are aspects of your life that are broken. Maybe it's in a relationship, maybe it's financially, maybe it's in your career, maybe as you look to your future, you see some brokenness. But I want to say to you, based on the promises of the word of God, that God can take that brokenness that exists in your life, that thing that feels like it's falling apart, and you serve a God who is strong and powerful, who's sovereign. And I want to say, in that place of brokenness, God will make beauty from it. But you have to trust him to allow him to do it in his time in his time, in his season. That's what God can do. God often allows seasons of brokenness. You say, why would God allow brokenness in my health? Why would God allow brokenness in my finances? Why would God allow brokenness in my relationship or in my career? Why would God allow brokenness in my soul and I feel depressed and I just feel, I, I just, I'm, I'm struggling with this. Why does God allow seasons of brokenness? I want to say this, often God allows seasons of brokenness so that we can more fully experience seasons of beauty. You see, the reason that we can experience beauty the way we experience it is because there have been times where we've experienced seasons of brokenness. Honestly, if our lives were lived with no brokenness, it would be very difficult for us to sense and experience the beauty. It is the context of humanity, broken humanity, that allows us to enter in and see beauty. It's the context of the brokenness that allows us to experience the beauty in the way that God would have us to. So can I say this? If you find yourself right now in a season of brokenness, man, with a heart posture of humility, could I encourage you to go to God and say, it is well. To surrender that to the Lord. Rather than resisting it, rather than kicking against it, rather than saying, God, you're not fair. To come to God with a humble spirit, a heart full of faith, to say, God, you're bigger than I, you're wiser than I, and I trust you. And I, I can't always give you a reason for why God allows the brokenness he allows. I don't always know the answer to that. 
But I do know this, that God always gives beauty in his time. And I don't want to sound too metaphysical about this, but I, will, I, 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 do, I must remind you that even if you spend your entire existence on earth in a broken situation, and maybe for your entire existence on this planet, you experience nothing but hurt and pain and brokenness. That in the whole scheme of eternity, it's minuscule. There will be some folks here and the beauty you experience will not be experienced on this earth. The beauty that your heart longs for and the building that your heart longs for will be something that you'll experience in heaven for eternity. But I want to say that. I want to remind you of the fact that in eternity, thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come, as you're experiencing the beauty of the heavenlies, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in light of what God has for the rest of forever. Now, it's a blessing when God gives us those raindrops of beauty here on earth. But we're talking a little bit about the season of this story. We saw for a moment the subject of this story, the synopsis of this story here. But notice here, as it says at the end of verse number one, it says, and it came to pass in the month of Chesilu in the 20th year, that's the season, I was in Shushan the palace. Let me give you the setting for this story, all right? The setting. You say, what's the setting? The setting was Shushan the palace. We'll break this up into two parts. Uh, We'll look at the city of Shushan for a moment, and then we'll spend some time looking at the castle or the palace of Shushan as we kind of give you some context. Now, I realize we're, we're in the of this right now. Uh, I, I do understand that this is a little bit more academic in nature, all right? And those of you who have been around for any measure of time, uh, you realize that there is more of a teachy element to kind of getting this particular series started. But I do think it's helpful as we move through the next few weeks and the few months. I do think there is a place for understanding context, for understanding some of the academic, you know, things that are happening both culturally and politically, that as we talk in the coming chapters about the spiritual implications of it, I think it'll help to have this in the background a little bit. So what's the setting? Let's look at the city of Shushan. Shushan, all right, is actually, it's also known as Susa, all right? So I might actually use the word Susa at times, and if I do, I'm, I'm, I'm using those terms synonymously. Shushan, Susa, uh, the same place. In fact, if you look on a map today, you won't find a Shushan, you'll find a Susa. It was one of the most ancient cities in the world and was the primary residence for the Persian government at this time. Uh, in fact, some people today, you can go to the ancient city of Susa, which is Shushan, and uh, if you go there, you'll actually find that there is a uh, tomb that belongs to Daniel, and it's located in this particular city. Uh, the city itself is located about 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf. It's about 200 miles east of ancient Babylon. I don't know if we have a map. If you want to pull that up real quick, Andy, and just to kind of give us an idea of where uh, Shushan is. So you'll see Susa, you'll see Jerusalem, and so it's about 150 miles there uh, to make their way to this particular city uh, from that. The city is located uh, in, a, in just uh, east of Babylon, and, and so we see the city of Shushan, but I want you to notice the castle of Shushan for just a particular moment. Uh, this was a very famous palace whose ruins are visible to this day, all right? And I don't know if we have a picture of the actual ruins that are in here somewhere. And so here we, as archaeologists, have digged these things up. It was a great central hall. The hall of the castle of Shushan, or Shushan the palace, was about 350 feet long and about 250 feet wide, making it larger than a football field. So you could kind of get an idea of how enormous, literally just the hall where the king would have said. It was in this very room that uh, Daniel, from the book of Daniel, would have had his visions. It's also where King Ahasuerus had a feast. He asked his wife to dance. She refused and thus created the circumstances and the string of events that would eventually lead to Esther becoming the queen 
of this time. And so this is a very historic castle. It's a very historic city. In fact, archaeologists and the ruins they discover always substantiate the claims of Scripture. And, and this is one of the things that I find intriguing as I study the Old Testament is archaeologists will go out, they'll read passages like we read just a moment ago. Archaeologists will go out and say, well, the Bible says this is in such and such a place. Archaeologists will start digging, and then they will actually find the places that the Bible talks about, thus substantiating the claims of Scripture. And I think this is a beautiful thing. It's Proverbs chapter number 30 and verse number 5 that says, every word of God is pure. And you know, we can trust the claims of Scripture. I've said this several times from this pulpit, but not everything makes sense when it comes to God. Uh, Let's just be transparent. Not everything I read, not everything that God speaks of makes sense to me. Now, maybe it all makes sense to you, and if if that's the case, awesome. You know, that that makes you an incredible person. I'm just going to be transparent with you. Not everything about God, not everything I see in the scriptures make perfect sense to me. But I will say this, what I found is that a whole lot more makes sense with God than without him. And that's where I've come to. I've come to a place where I've said, hey, well, I can't make sense of all of it. Not all of it, you know, uh, is, 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 is kind of, you know, fall. but I will say this, a lot more makes sense with God than without him. And that's why I feel comfortable placing my faith in the claims of the scriptures. So we've seen now the setting of the story. We saw the seasons of the story. Let's keep reading. The Bible says here, It says, and it came to pass, all right, that's our synopsis, in the month of Chislu, that's that's here the season. We see Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, that's the subject of the story. I was in Shushan, the palace, that's the setting for the story. Notice here in verse number two, the Bible says that Hananiah, one of my brethren, one of my brothers came, he and certain men of Judah. So they come from Jerusalem, which leads us to the next thought, and that is the source of this story. Where does, where does this story come from? Where, what's the source of it? And it's Hananiah. This, this guy by the name of Hananiah, who we find out later, uh, is going to be one of the governors in Israel. That'll pop up later in this particular book, but we find that it's one of his brothers, and this is, this is the source of the story, all right? They were apparently on leave from Jerusalem, visiting in Shushan. Now, one of the things I find really, really interesting is Hananiah was a man who is not a negative complainer, all right? Uh, in fact, what he's about to say in a moment is not just something he gives out. It's not like he's gossiping and he comes over to Nehemiah and says, oh man, everything's awful in Israel and it's awful and horrible, da 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 He's not really a complaining type. In fact, he doesn't even really say anything about the situation until Nehemiah asks him and he says, hey, hey, Hananiah, man, how are things going in Jerusalem? You know, it's, this is not like Hananiah is like looking for an opportunity to say something negative. It's not like Hananiah is running around looking for an opportunity to say something pessimistic. He literally comes to a place and he's just kind of like, all of a sudden, Nehemiah asks him a question. And so he then kind of um, answers. Now, I'm going to say this on the other side, too. Just, just like Hananiah is not one of these guys who's just complaining and gossiping. I mean, it, it kind of, Nehemiah had to draw this out of him. Uh, also, Hananiah is not just kind of a head in the clouds, Pollyanna, everything's perfect and everything's super dandy and everything. It's not like he lies once Nehemiah asks him how it's going, you know? And so Hananiah, is, he, he's a real, he's just kind of a, a unique guy in the sense that he, he's not this complaining, negative uh, kind of type person, but he's also a realist. He, he, he's not a head in the sky, hey, everything's super great in Israel, nothing to worry about, it's no big deal. He's kind of one of these guys who who just has a good spirit, but he also sees the reality of what is. I I find that much like Hannah and I, there's there's kind of tends to be two types of people in the world sometimes that fall on either of these extremes. And I'll just say this, and maybe you've met them at your workplace, or maybe you've met them here at church. There seems to be some people who are just pessimistic and negative, and they're gossiping about this and gossiping about this, and it seems like no matter what happens, they just feel negative and awful and horrible. You don't have to ask them if they're having a good day. They're going to just tell you, hey, man, my day's awful. You know, it's just, there's just a spirit that goes along with it. And man, being around them, it just drains your energy. And, and we've all probably been around people like this, and they just, they, man, it kind of like, it almost feels like toxic to some degree and it's just like man it's so heavy and burdensome and then we've been around other people 
you know, and they, the, these people over here have a hard time, you know, being positive about anything, you know. It's like, man, do you even believe that God's on the throne? Do you even believe that, man, God's in control of this situation? You'd almost sometimes doubt whether they believe in God just because of the way they live. Sometimes we'll refer to them as functional or practical atheists because with their words they say they believe in God, but their very spirit would betray the belief that they do at all. And on the flip side, you got people over here, and, and they're so optimistic and positive. You know, everything's going to be fine, everything's going to be dandy, and everything's going to be super. And they, they're the Pollyanna types. I remember the old Disney movie, Pollyanna, you know? And they're just head in the clouds, rose-colored lenses, and everything's going to work out, and everything's going to be perfect. And you get around these people, and it's like they can't even see the, the facts. They can't even see the reality of what is. And, and in Hananiah, we kind of find an interesting example of somebody who he's not a pessimistic, negative, toxic person, but he's also a person who can see the reality of what's going on. And and can I just say this? As we continue to surrender to the grace of God in our lives, I believe this is a mark of maturity in the spiritual person's life. That is a person who is not negative, a person who believes God is on the throne, who believes that God's working all things together for our good who trusts the fact that God's in control and and things are going to work out, but they also see the facts. They're They're not like an ostrich putting their head in the sand. They see the reality of what is. Hey, things look a little tough. Things look a little difficult. Things look a little hard. And so the ability to kind of bring both of those qualities together is just a mark of some real grace-given maturity in the life. Where do you find yourself? Has God's grace done that work in your life? Where do you, where do you tend to lean into? Are you, you kind of the type of person, yeah, you can see the facts and, and uh, you know, you're, you, you, you always see what's, what's happening and what's wrong with this and what's wrong with that and what's going on here and what's going on there, but it just kind of makes you a, a, an oppressive, depressed, you know, negative kind of person. Or maybe you're the type of person, everything's super great and everything's awesome, everything's dandy, and, 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 and like literally you can't even see the reality of the fact that you've got, man, there's some, there's some issues you've got to engage, and there's some very real things you need to address in your home and need to be addressed in your circumstances. But man, when we can bring these things together and come to a place like Hananiah, not negative, not pessimistic, but can be a person who just has faith in God, but also can see the reality of what is. Well, you know, you're not being negative. Do you, do, you, do you understand what's happening here? And do you see what's happening? Yes, I see what's happening. But guess what? I'm seeing it through the lens that God's in control. And that's a place, that, that's a mark of maturity that God develops in the heart of a believer. They, they're able to bring these qualities together. And it's a beautiful thing when God's grace works in and through our lives in that manner. To see what is, but not allow that what is to change our spirit. As we look for leaders around here, it's one of the qualities I know we look for in our leadership. We're looking for people who have this ability, this spiritual maturity to balance these two extremes, to see things for what they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but then be able to lean into every single one of them with just a spirit that has faith in God and a positive uh, perspective that God's in control and he can work all things together to good and we know that he can because he's in control. And that's the type of person that Hanani is. Jesus talks about these type of people when he says in John 16, these things have I spoken unto me that in me ye might have peace. So Jesus is gonna speak to this tension. He's gonna say at the end of that verse, in the world ye shall have tribulation. See, Jesus saw things for what they were. He wasn't a rose-colored, pie, you know, head-in-the-sky type of individual. Jesus saw the realities. Jesus could clearly see the facts. Jesus knew what was going on. He says, in the world, you will have tribulations. Things will get hard. Things will get difficult. But then he goes on to the other side, and he says, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. What an incredible quality to say, I can see what's happening, good, bad, and ugly, but I can be of good cheer. I can have a positive outlook. God's on the throne. Jesus is in charge. His grace reigns. He works all things together for his good and for our good and his ultimate glory. Why? Because that's who our God is. And so Jesus kind of spoke into that tension. And it's a, it's a quality that I pray we would yield to on a regular basis. We don't want to get caught up in one of these two extremes, but simply allow that to be. 
Oh, that God would grant believers the grace to clearly see the harsh realities of what is in front of them, but also have the radical faith in what God can do in spite of those difficult circumstances. That is a beautiful thing. It's a gorgeous thing. When we can, when we can manage those tensions in a way that Hananiah did. We see the source of this story. Let's keep moving real quick. The side of this story. Notice what it says in verse number uh, two. It says, he says, he talks about and he says, uh, Hananiah, one of my brethren came, he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, which were left of the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. You say, what is the side of the story? The side of the story that's going to take place throughout the rest of the book is Jerusalem. All right. It would take about three months to travel uh, from Shushan or from Susa to Jerusalem. All right, and so we see this is the place where this entire story would take place. So we see the site of the story will be Jerusalem. Now, I, I will say some, a couple of things about this Jerusalem. The wall that they're about to build, it would create a city that's roughly about 35 acres. How many of you, that's a little smaller than you had thought, you know, when you're thinking about how big this city would be. So once they build the walls, it's going to encompass a land area that's relatively about 35 acres. But I, I love how Nehemiah, before he asks about the city, he asks first about the people. He says here in verse number two, he says, he asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped. He had a heart for people. Even before things, he had a heart for people. Even before the city, he had a heart for people. And that we also would be a church that, that would have a heart for people first. And this is a tension. This is a struggle because we have to provide for our families and we got to work jobs and we got to get things done and we got to manage situations. But notice Nehemiah, his, the grace of God led him to put people first. Why? This place called Jerusalem. I will say this, the Jewish people do play a special part in the historical plans of God. As you study this book, you'll see that God does use the people of Jerusalem in a special way. Genesis 12 says this, I will bless them that bless thee, O Israel, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And even 2,000 years later, it's interesting how a statement like this has political implications in the day and age in which we live even now. So the side of this story is Jerusalem. No, I want you to see the significance of the story, and we'll kind of wrap it up. What, what's the significance? The significance. We, we've, we've talked about the side of this story. We've talked about the source of this story. The, we've talked about the setting of this story. We've talked about the subject and the seasons and the synopsis of the story. What's so significant about the story or Nehemiah's story here? What, what makes it so important? This story really is a story about renewal and rebuilding. And so as we close this up today, and I know this has been somewhat cerebral this morning, a little bit more on the academic side, but as we march through it, the significance of this story is the fact that God is a God who takes broken things and makes them beautiful. See, as, as human beings, we're, we can tend to be perfectionists, and, and some of us more so, if you're like me, maybe even lean more into this thing. And, and so we want, we want God just to do everything perfect, no mess-ups, no brokenness, no, no detours. That's not the way God works. You see, our God is a God that doesn't just, you know, work in spite of our brokennesses. But he literally works and builds using our brokenness. Some of the most beautiful things that will happen in your future will be a direct result of the brokenness that God allowed into your life. And you've got to believe that. You've got to come to faith that it's not like, well, this broken thing, my marriage, happened over here, and then God's going to kind of do away with that, and he's going to start something uh, totally different and do that. That's just not the way our God works. We serve a God that the most beautiful things that he creates, the most awesome things that he develops, it's not like he does away with the brokenness and then somewhere else makes something beautiful. The way our God works is he's a God that takes the broken pieces of our life like a broom, he sweeps them into 
into a pile. He picks those broken pieces up. He starts putting those broken pieces together, the parts of our lives that we thought were done with, the parts of our lives that we thought were just the worst of who we are. And he takes those exact pieces. He takes those exact experiences. He takes those exact memories. He takes those exact issues and he pieces them together until he makes a masterpiece with them. And that's what makes our God so epically transcendent is he doesn't need to do away with the old to do something new. He can literally take the old and make something beautiful. He takes that which is broken and turns them into something new. And that is when the world steps back in awe of the wonder and glorious nature of our God because anybody can take something brand new and make it look nice, but only God can take the ugly the broken, the difficult, piece them together in a way that the world steps back in awe of the master artist. That's what our God does. That's how our God works. And that's what our God's going to do in your marriage. That's what he's going to do in the broken situation that you're facing right now. You're, You're living in doubt right now spiritually. You feel far from God. God's not just going to cast you aside and say, well, I got to go find some. I'm going to start over. I obviously messed up with that believer. He says, no. He he says, surrender the brokenness. Just give it to me. Just surrender it. And I will take those broken pieces, the broken experiences, the broken dreams, the broken relationships, the broken finances and the broken health and you surrender those things to him and I will, yes, no, is God gonna make, is God gonna put and take those broken pieces and make your dream? No. He'll destroy your dream and give you something better. His dream. His vision. And I will say this, you'll like it so much more than anything you had planned for yourself. No, it will not be what you imagined. Your life is not going to end up the way you thought it was going to end up. Your life is not going to come together the way you imagined it when you were a teenager. But God is going to give you a gift. And as you hand him the broken pieces of your life, he's going to create a life of beauty from the broken pieces that is far more rewarding, far more rich, far more life-giving, far more glorious than anything you could have imagined without all that brokenness. Our God is a God that builds beauty at the exact place of our most agonizing brokenness. That is the power of your God. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.